Uh, if you have your Bible, open back up to Mark chapter 1. That's where we were last week. That's where we're going to be again today in Mark chapter 1. Last week, we started a new series in the Gospel of Mark that's going to carry us the rest of the way through the summer and into the fall as we get ready to kind of close out the end of, of 2019. And I thought the Gospel of Mark would be a powerful way for us to do that as we get ready to end the year. And so we opened up this series last week, and the series title is Leave Your Mark. And as I said last week, that's a play on words. Because it is the gospel that is accredited to John Mark, who was an early disciple of Jesus. Okay, It is traditionally believed that John Mark got with Peter and wrote down Peter's version of the story. And so essentially, this is also Peter's gospel. It is just put in the words of John Mark, or Mark as we call him. And so there's that play on words, leave your mark. And as we got to the end of the message, uh, as I got to the point, I told you that that point is going to be about that. It's going to be about leaving our mark. You know, how did Jesus leave his mark? But not only how did Jesus leave his mark, how do we as disciples, how do we leave our mark in the world? Okay, and this message today is one that's been resonating with me for quite some time. It's one that's kind of stirring things up within me, and I hope that it will with you. Because if we are disciples of Christ, then there's more required of us than just sitting here on Sunday and Wednesday. Do you agree with that? Are you willing to make changes in that, if that is your only discipleship method. Good. I think this message particularly is going to challenge us and is going to call us out of that. But real quick, let's recap some of the stuff we talked about last week. Because one of the great things about Mark is he is a great storyteller. And I pulled this quote from a book called Marcus Story. And this is a, this is a great description of it. It says, The Gospel of Mark deals with the great issues, life and death, good and evil, God and Satan, triumph and failure, human morality and human destiny. It's not a simple story in which virtue easily triumphs over vice, nor is it a collection of moral instructions for life. The narrative offers not simple answers, but tough challenges. In Mark, we enter a world of conflict and suspense, a world of surprising reversals and strange ironies, and the protagonist, Jesus, is the most surprising of all. And that's an incredible opening that describes this book, describes the things that happen. And as we get into chapter 1 in earnest today, we're going to see a lot of those things happen. We're going to see good and evil. We're going to see God and Satan. We're going to see the triumph of love over the tyranny of Satan. 
And this isn't going to be the only time. This is mixed in all throughout the book of Mark. And then in just a few weeks, I'm really excited to get to chapter 5 as I'm going to share with you a story that I've shared with you before, but I'm going to explain it maybe in a slightly different way. And I, I was talking with some guys about this on Friday at our men's lunch. It's in that chapter. In chapter 5, where I root and ground my theology of ministry, which is really something that I think all of us should have. We should have something in the gospel that says, this is why I believe like I believe. This is why I do the things that I do. Because Jesus has has infected me and affected me in in such a way. And so I'm looking forward to sharing that with you in in just a, a few weeks. Now... One of the things we said last week is that Mark loves a certain word. And it's that Greek word, euthus. Let's say this together again one time. Euthus. And remember what that word means? Does anybody remember? Immediately. Immediately. And it's not always immediately. Sometimes, uh, sometimes there's variations of it. Uh, as soon as or just then. Mark uses the form, some form of euthus, over 40 times in his gospel. And in the section of text that we're going to read today, about 30 verses, he's going to use it eight different times. And depending on what version you read, it could be nine times. Okay? It's going to be immediately, or just then, or as soon as. Okay? Remember, Mark is telling this story with urgency. Because... He is writing in the midst of Roman persecution. Okay? Christians are being punished. They're experiencing Nero's tyranny. And somebody comes to the realization, probably through the the influence of the Holy Spirit, that while we've got Paul's writings, and we've we've heard all about Paul's missionary journeys and all of that other stuff, no one has taken the time to write down the story of Jesus. The life. The ministry. The death, the burial, and the resurrection. And so the Holy Spirit lays it on John Mark's heart to write out the gospel. And so he does. And in this way, in this way, John Mark leaves his mark on the world. Okay, he leaves his mark by telling us the story. You know, that was kind of the, the, the leave your mark point of last week. That he left his mark by telling us the story. We leave our mark by sharing the love of Jesus with those that we come in contact with. That's kind of what we, we talked about last week. Mark left his mark. As disciples, we too are called to leave a mark. Now then, marks can be good things or marks can be bad things, right? You know, you got a nice piece of furniture and it gets a mark on it. That's not the good kind of mark. Okay, you can't get it out and it always kind of bugs you and you always notice it. But there's also things that are good marks. Like benchmarks. Here's something we did. Here was a goal that we set. Okay, here's something that we worked toward and we hit that mark. Or this signifies that we accomplished or achieved something. And that's kind of what we're talking about 
throughout this series. Now then, there is another kind of mark. We can not just mark up furniture, but we can mark up other people in a negative way if we're not careful. Right? Because Satan also leaves his mark. Evil leaves its mark. Okay? And if we are disciples believers in and followers of Jesus, then the prayer that Jesus prayed should be the prayer that we pray that when we go to God in prayer, we say, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Meaning that God's will on earth is not always being done as it is in heaven. Otherwise, Jesus never would have told us to pray that way. And it's obvious because you look around and you see the marks of evil everywhere. You see it in sickness and disease. You see it in addiction. You see it in death and famine and injustice and oppression and racism. The marks of death, the marks of evil are everywhere. And disciples of Jesus are called, and I've used this phrase before in a sermon a long time ago, We are called to leave spirit marks, Jesus marks on the people that we we come in contact with. And that's one of the things that I think is sort of driving this series for me is that we've got to start doing more of that kind of thing. Are you with me? Good. Well, let's begin. Last week as the story opened up, It opens with John the Baptist in his ministry. And Jesus went out to John the Baptist. And remember, he was baptized by John. There was the discussion about who should baptize who. And no, you need to baptize me. Finally, John agrees. Of course, this is in the other Gospels. But we know that John agrees to baptize Jesus. Jesus is baptized. The The heavens open. The dove descends. God speaks. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And at that point... Jesus goes out into the wilderness. He's tempted for 40 days by Satan. And then his ministry begins. He says, I'm here to proclaim the gospel, preaching the good news to those he comes in contact with. And so now, as we pick up in verse 16, that ministry is in full swing. And so he's out one day and he's walking alongside the Sea of Galilee. And this is where he calls his first disciples. And he comes across, he comes across a a group of what is ultimately going to be uh, four people, two sets of brothers, and he calls them. The first group that he comes across are Andrew and Simon. And we know Simon mostly as, as Peter. Okay? And he comes across them, and he just says one thing to them in verse 17. A very powerful verse. He says right here on the screen, you'll see it. Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Now then, that's an interesting phrase that Jesus uses. And there's a couple of things there. We live in a world that highly values education, certification, qualification, notoriety. Do we not? And a lot of times, it's only the people that have those things that get to do certain things, right? And, and sometimes that's good. You know, if you are a mechanic, 
I don't want you performing open heart surgery on me. Okay? Whether you stayed at a Holiday Inn Express or not. Okay? There's just some wisdom to certain qualifications. But guess what? There is no qualification to be a disciple of Jesus other than a willing heart. Okay? And so as Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee, He sees these guys who are fishermen. Okay? And He looks at them. And these are normal guys. There's not anything particularly special about Andrew. There's nothing particularly special about Simon. There's going to be nothing special about James and John, except that they might have a little bit of a temper, which they get from their dad. Okay? There's nothing about them. They are not qualified. Acts 4 talks about that. They were unschooled, uneducated, ordinary men. Okay? And so they're walking by, and Jesus is walking by, and He sees these guys, and He says, Follow me. I'll make you fish for people. Jesus is connecting with them in a level that, on a level that they understand, because what is their profession? Fishermen. Okay, this is what they are doing. They are fishermen. Okay, and he says, I'll tell you what, if you follow me, I'll make you fish for people. And we think, you know, that's a good verse right there. That's a, that's a, you know, that's an encouraging verse. He's, he's talking about what they do. He's speaking to them on this, this level that they understand. But instead of catching fish, you're gonna catch people and it's this sort of this great evangelistic moment but i want you to think about this because here's a perspective on this verse that you may not have considered before david garland says one should not assume that jesus uses fishing as a benign reference to mission that it's only about mission in other words or it's just just kind of casually thrown out oh hey i'll talk about fishing they're fishing When the fisherman hooks a fish, it has fatal consequences for the fish. Life cannot go on as it did before. Have you ever thought about that in reference to this verse? Because that's, you know, we sort of think of that as the evangelistic verse. And there is a strong evangelistic punch from that verse. But when we peel it back, we realize that there's some deeper stuff There's some deeper stuff that is going on. The disciples, when He calls them to be fish, we realize, we realize that this image of the fishermen catching the fish, catching people, that it has the, it fits the transforming power of the gospel. The gospel that brings judgment and death to the old, yet promises new creation. Okay, And so that's it. When we are, are caught by Jesus, okay, then guess what? Then just like the fish, there, ha- there are consequences. Okay, So being caught by, by Jesus means you have become a disciple or you are willing to become a disciple. That doesn't mean life carries on as it is. It means there will be a death. Are you with me? See, we don't think about that a lot, do we? We just think, man, this is a great verse. Go and be fishers of men. Well, guess what? That means death is coming. Okay? To catch a fish means death is coming because we don't catch a fish and then usually keep it alive in a fish tank. Okay? When we fish, we fish for a specific reason. 
When we become disciples of Jesus, life can no longer continue as it did. We have to die to ourself. But unlike with actual fish, with us, there is new creation. There is new life. There is resurrection. That's the the power of the gospel. That we get raised to, to something new. The disciples are called to be agents who will bring the message of Jesus to others that's going to change their lives beyond recognition. This is the mark that Jesus leaves on them. And we'll talk more about that later. And so he says to, he says to, to Andrew, and he says to Simon Peter, come and follow me. He goes a little further down the beach and he sees James and John. And they're with their father Zebedee. Says the same thing. And guess what? It says that they leave their nets. They leave their boat. They leave their father. They leave everything. And they go and they follow Jesus. They had no clue what Jesus was going to do. They hadn't seen Jesus perform a miracle yet. He had not told them his mission statement, his strategy, what his plan was. But what we can tell is there's something compelling about Jesus. And so they left everything and they made a complete and total commitment to Jesus. Okay? That's what it is to be a disciple. It says, immediately... They left their nets and followed. Immediately, you got two immediately's in that one opening paragraph. Immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee. And they went out and they followed him. In verse 21, they went into Capernaum. And and Capernaum is going to be home base for Jesus. Okay, that's going to be his base of operations for a while. They went into Capernaum and right away, immediately, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astounded by his teaching because he was teaching them as one who as one who had authority. They were astounded because he was not like the scribes. Just then, a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue. And he cried out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw him into convulsions and shouted with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed. And so they began to ask each other, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him at once. The news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. So here's Jesus' first encounter. First encounter with evil. He's in Capernaum. He goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath and he begins to teach. And it says that the people are amazed because he teaches as one who has authority, not like the scribes. And we think, well, what does that mean? Okay, well, the scribes, they're part of that religious, you know, religious sect, uh, religious leaders. 
You have Sadducees, you have Pharisees, you have the scribes. Okay, the scribes and the Pharisees believe some of the same things, and then they believe a little bit differently. Okay, they all kind of teach, primarily it's the Pharisees, they're kind of explaining the text. And then you have the scribes, who are also known as lawyers, because they studied the law of Moses. They're the ones that say, you know, they're, they're like the theologians. Okay, okay, they're like the ones who, like, like when you go home, and you have a question about something I said, the theologian sitting next to you says, well, this is what he said, but here's what the text actually meant. Okay? They explained further what the law said or what the text said. Okay? Jesus comes along and he begins teaching, and the people are amazed at this because he's not teaching like the scribes and the Pharisees. He's teaching as one who has his own authority. What does that mean? Okay, Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has gone through the Beatitudes, then he gets into this section called the New Authority, where he says, you have heard it said this, but now I'm telling you that. Okay? The scribes, they would say, this is what God says. Okay? This is what this rabbi says. This is what this teacher says. Jesus comes along and says, you've heard it this way, but here's what I'm telling you. Okay? He is coming revealing that he has his own authority. He has the authority of God. And so he's there, he's in the synagogue and he's teaching, and then comes this guy with this demon who recognizes Jesus. He's got this unclean spirit. He says, what do you have to do with us? like all of us, like a lot of demons. And he says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Even the demons recognize Jesus. Okay? That's a pretty important thing. There's a lot of people that won't recognize Jesus. But even according to the Word, even demons recognize Jesus and know who He is. Jesus says, be silent. Jesus didn't want Him speaking. Be silent, come out. He comes out, he throws the guy into convulsions, and then he finally comes out, and again it says, they were all amazed. And they began to ask, who is this? And what is this? This, this? this new teaching with authority that he commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. You see, in Jesus' day, an exorcist, an exorcist would go around and it would cast out demons or try to cast out demons, but it would not kind of do it itself. It would be under the authority of some deity or some incantation. Okay? Jesus needs none of that. Jesus says, be quiet, come out of them. Jesus doesn't need that because Jesus is the ultimate authority. This... This... Spirit-empowered reality is how Jesus is beginning to leave His mark. His mark is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God has arrived. The gospel, the good news is here. And it has the power to banish darkness. And so the people are amazed at Him. Verse 29, same thing. Here it is, another version of Euthus. As soon as they left the synagogue, they go to Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law, did you know Peter was married? Anybody know that? 
Simon's mother-in-law is sick with a fever or whatever it is. And so Jesus goes in and heals her. Now then, a lot of the virgins don't have at once or immediately right here. But some of them do. It says immediately or at once she got up and began to serve him. Now that's a shameful verse in scripture right there. She's sick and then still has to get up and serve the people. Come on now. What's going on with that picture? Okay. Jesus heals her and immediately, immediately the fever left her. Now watch verse 32. When evening came after the sun had set, they brought him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town assembled at the door and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and he drove out many demons and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. He did not want demons acknowledging and proclaiming who he was. That right is reserved for God's children. Verse 35, Jesus is a spiritual disciplines guy. Very early in the morning while it was still dark, he got up and he went out and he made his way to a deserted place. And there he was what? Praying. Jesus spent all the previous day teaching, healing sick people, and driving out demons. Now then, well, he said, well, yeah, well, he's God. He can do that. Yes, he is God. He is fully God, but he's also fully human which means he dwells in a body like ours and a body that gets tired and exhausted and he can get mentally spent. And Jesus knows the only way for him to continue doing what he's doing is to stay in contact, in connection with his Father. And so he gets up while it's early. He goes off and he prays. And this is what a disciple does too. We have to stay in connection with God. Okay, and here's what I think. If we don't have that connection at some point during our day and during our week with God, letting God put spirit marks on us, then I think we are more tempted and more open to the possibility of putting the marks of evil out into the world. Does that make sense? It's important for us as disciples of Jesus to spend time with Jesus. To spend time with the Father, whenever that might be. They come and they find Him. They say, everybody's looking for you. Verse 38, He said to them, well, let's go on to the neighboring villages so I may preach there too. This is why I've come. So it says that He went into all of Galilee, into their synagogues, and He was preaching and He's driving out demons. And verse 40 says, Then a man with leprosy came to Him on his knees and begged Him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Now notice this verse. Now I think I've got 17 on there, but it should be 41. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out His hand and He touched Him. There's two really, really important things here, and they're in red. The word compassion and the word touched Him. Now then... This is a really crazy sounding, extremely difficult, hard to pronounce Greek word that I cannot pronounce. So I'm not going to give you that. But it starts with an S. And it's like splunk. Okay. And there's a couple of different renderings for that verse, for, for what it means. Okay. 
When it says that Jesus is moved with compassion, moved with compassion, it could be said, and you've heard me say this before, that this verse could be translated that He was moved to His bowels with compassion. We think, man, that's nasty. Don't want to hear about bowel movements in church. Okay? But think about our Enneagram class. Okay? Eights, nines, and ones are in one triad. You remember what that triad was? It's the gut triad. Okay? The bowels, or the guts, if you would prefer that term, it said that that is where, that's where the, the, the heart, that's where the, the anger is said to arise from. To arise from one's gut. Okay, if you're reading from the New Revised Standard, it says that Jesus was moved with pity. Okay, but it could also be translated that Jesus was moved with anger. Because it's in the, in the gut where the violent passions of love and anger reside. So when we translate that verse, you could say that Jesus was moved with compassion. He was moved with anger. He was moved with pity. Both of those work. Okay, but here's the thing. When we think about this anger, Jesus is not angry at this guy who's busted up in the synagogue and interrupted everything. He is angry over the tyranny of Satan that has enslaved and encapsulated this man. And it says that Jesus is moved with compassion. And He reaches out and He touches him. And it's not like just touching somebody who's got the cold, got a cold or the flu. He touches a leper. And leper has a wide range of meaning in Scriptures, but most often it has to do with a skin disease. Okay? It's always contagious. And they always had to say, unclean, don't come near me, you're going to get this. You'll get this skin disease or your arm's going to fall off, depending on the severity of the leprosy. Okay? But Jesus touches him. Jesus is not infected by the disease. Jesus infects him with healing. This is the power of Jesus. That He is not subject to death. He's not subject to disease the same way we are. His power is greater than those things. He came to bring the gospel, the good news, the healing. He came to bring life and new creation. So He's moved with compassion. He reaches out and touches Him. He says, I am willing. Be made clean. And then notice the first word of verse 42. Immediately. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Then he sternly warned him and sent him away at once, telling him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet he went out and he began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news with the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, But he was out in the deserted places and they came to him from everywhere. And we think, well, that's good news. Why didn't Jesus Jesus want that word spread? I think the main reason is that Jesus did not want to be known solely as a healer. Okay? Jesus came to offer 
more. He came to bring the people the gospel. This is everything. That's an action-packed chapter right there, is it not? Guess what? Chapter 2 is going to start the same way. Okay? It's going to be destruction of property and healings. Okay? That's what's happening in Capernaum. It's going to end up in controversy. Okay? That's what Jesus is dealing with. Okay? Mark jumps straight to it. Straight to this stuff. So, leaving your mark. What, is this, what does this mean to us? What does it have to do with us? What do we learn about leaving our mark in this chapter? What do we learn from Jesus? The first thing that we learn is this, is that Jesus left His mark through His call and by His touch. Do you see that? He left His mark by calling disciples to come follow Him, to come be fish, to be caught, to die to self, to have new life. And then He also left His mark by touch, compassion, healing. Okay? That's how Jesus left His mark. So how do we leave our mark? We leave our mark by answering the call and by making more disciples. Now then, we have the advantage point that Mark's original readers didn't have. Okay? We have the whole book already, and we know what it's going to say at the end. That go into the world. Go and make disciples. You know, Matthew closes down that way. Go into the, all the world and make disciples of all people. Okay, we have the advantage of looking backwards and understanding that text. And so what it means for us to leave our mark is that we answer the call of Jesus if we have not. And then we leave to go out and to find others and to make disciples. Now then, let's, talk, let's dial this in a little bit more on discipleship. And I'm just going to warn you ahead of time, this might be painful for just a few minutes. Unlike John the Baptist, unlike John the Baptist, Jesus does not wait for people to come to Him all at once at some chosen site, at some location. Jesus takes the initiative by seeking out followers with the command, you come, you come and follow me. Okay? He doesn't put up a sign-up sheet like we do for church softball or asking for, for volunteers. He doesn't post office hours when he's going to be available to discuss the kingdom of God with those who might be curious. Jesus goes out and he finds people who he wants to be his followers. Okay, but you see what happens is we often, and when I say we, I'm indicting us, we, myself included, we fall into the trap of thinking that if we just put on the right program, or if we just find the right kind of events that people will naturally come to, G- uh, to, to Jesus, but more likely to church. But the call of the disciple is not merely just to create events and programs. The call of a disciple 
is for people. Now then, I'm not saying those things are not important because they are and they help with discipleship. But here's the thing. We can have the greatest programming in the world, but if we're not out telling people about Jesus, who gives a rip? Right? Who cares? The first job of a disciple is to make disciples. The problem is, I think we have forgotten that. The empty seats in this room tell that story. We have forgotten that our first job as disciples is to make disciples. So here's two questions for you right here. Who is here because someone here invited them? Okay, a few of us, good. Who is a Christian... Who among us here is a Christian because someone discipled them, taught them, led them to Jesus? Good. Now, third question. Who are you discipling? That's a heavy question in light of what we're talking about. Okay? But if we are going to leave our mark on the world, it's not going to happen just by having more church services. Okay? You've heard me say this a hundred times. If all it is is this, I don't know that I want that. Just an endless amount of church services. I want what we do to leave a mark on the place where we live. So that if our doors somehow had to close, people would miss us because we have left our mark on the community. A church that closes and nobody misses, guess what? Is not making disciples. If we are going to be Christians, call ourselves Christians, claim to be Christians, and I am just as guilty as anybody. We have to make disciples. We have to reach out to people. Okay? Jesus, Jesus left His mark through His call and by His touch. We leave our mark by answering that call and by making disciples. David Garland goes on and he says, The call and the instant response of these fishermen reveal something of what discipleship to Jesus entails and should shatter our comfortable world of middle-class discipleship. Disciples are not those who simply fill pews at worship, fill out pledge cards, and attend occasional Bible study and offer to help out in the work of the church now and then. 
They're not merely eavesdroppers and onlookers. When one is hooked by Jesus, one's whole life and purpose in life are transformed by Him. That's that's the power of the gospel. Paul writes in Romans 1, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first to the Jews, then to the Greeks. For in it, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God, which is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That's the power of the gospel. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. So then the question comes back to us again. If we are not making disciples, are we ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Because if we're telling the truth, then there are some times where I have to say, yeah, I've been ashamed of telling the gospel of Christ. Where I could have shared something. were there for me to talk about Jesus to redirect and I just didn't do it you probably can relate to that okay we have to get uncomfortable with complacency okay with just sitting with just coming, with just service after service after service, we have to get uncomfortable with the fact that we are not making disciples as God calls us to make disciples. We have to be unashamed of the gospel of Christ. So here's the mark of a disciple. Based on this text, we see it is to accept the commands of Jesus. Jesus told Peter and Andrew, He told James and John, come and follow me. Jesus extends that same call to you, come follow me. But Jesus also extends commands by saying what? Love God with everything you've got. Your heart, soul, mind, strength, body, your whole being. Love God with everything. And then you know what? Go and love your neighbor the way that you love yourself. In doing so, you will fulfill all the law and the prophets. All of those things. The hinge pin is love. Love of God, love of others. Okay? So the mark of the disciple is accepting the commands of Jesus. The second thing is following wherever Jesus leads us. And who knows where that'll be? James and John and Peter and Andrew certainly had no clue. He didn't tell them. He just led them. And they followed. Jesus may lead you into places that you never thought possible. That is going on in my own life. And if you will allow it, it'll happen that way to you. You'll find yourself in some situation, talking to some people in some forum, some job, some whatever, with an opportunity to talk about Jesus. And then thirdly, the mark of a disciple means denying ourselves and taking up our cross daily. That's living sacrificially. That's living in service 
to one another. That are just, those are just a few marks of the disciple. So, are we leaving, not are, let me reframe that question. What kind of mark are we leaving? You know, you sit on a couch for a long time and you get up and it kind of leaves a mark there, doesn't it? Maybe it's time for us, to, for us to let these chairs rebound a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Let these chairs have a little bit of a break. Maybe it's time for us to go back out and to live unashamed of the gospel of Christ and make disciples again. You know, I went to a VBS a few weeks ago. And I was, it was there, it was a couple weeks ago, it was there that this message really convicted me. As I looked around and I saw lots of children. I saw lots of young families. I saw lots of senior adults. And I had to face a sad truth that if we don't start making disciples, this church may have to close its doors. And I do not want that to happen. Jesus will leave his mark on us. He calls us to leave our mark on the world. What kind of mark are you leaving?